Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I am David Rothkopf, and for this episode of Deep State Radio, we've got the original Beatles back together again. We've got, in beautiful Vermont, <laughs> David Sanger. Hi, David. Hey there, David. I'm staring and, out at the green mountains as we speak. And also surrounded by mountains. I don't know if they're green or not. Um, I think is Rosa Brooks in Wyoming. Hi, correct? David. My mountains uh, uh, have some green, some brown, and some patches of snow. Wow, very nice. And um, staring at the snow drifting off of Boris Johnson's head, we've got Corey Chalky <laughs> um, in the middle of that London. That was not actually a good image. No, it's not. No, there is no Boris Johnson image that passes the threshold Rosa has just established. Right, and in <laughs> Sussex, but of course is Ed Luce enjoying the English countryside. Hi, Ed. Hi. I'm just wondering, which one is Ringo? <laughs> you know I'll what they Ringo. say. You know what they say at the poker table. If you're the one who asks which one is Ringo, it's you. Um, oh, fuck. That's I'm exactly sorry. what they say. <laughs> <laughs> um, so... Uh, let's start with this, Corey. Um, why don't you give a, a valedictory for Dan Coates, the last of the adults in the room, now scheduled to leave on August 15th? Yeah, I will gladly give a valedictory. I tip my hat to Dan Coates because uh, lots of people probably saw the North Korean-style Trump cabinet meeting for which Secretary of Defense Jim Mattis got so much justified admiration for refusing to, to behave the way Mike Pompeo, Vice President Pence, and others did. Uh, but what many people didn't notice is that the first man in the room, because they were all men in the room, uh, to, to do that was Dan Coates. And what he said in that cabinet meeting was that it was a privilege to work for the people of the American intelligence community who put their lives on the line for our country every single day. And that kind of integrity and focus on doing the right thing, I think, characterized his time as director of national intelligence. And, and our country should be incredibly grateful especially now what we now that we know what the next act is going to look like. Um, David, you do a lot of interaction with the intelligence community. 
and not only did Coates do, as Corey described, but in his letter of farewell, he said a similar thing about the intelligence community. He's respected them, respected their processes, um, uh, uh, defended their work product, and been willing to speak truth to power. And now they're facing down the barrel of a guy who, if appointed, Representative Ratcliffe would be the least qualified person ever to become uh, deputy, uh, ever ever to become director of national intelligence, and uh, uh, and a highly political figure. So I'm wondering how you think this might be being received within the IC. Well, uh, I haven't had enough time yet to see how it's being received in the IC, but I thought it was really notable that the uh, chairman of the Senate Intelligence Committee, Richard Burr, who's going to have to hold the, the hearings to uh, uh, confirm Congressman Ratcliffe, um, went on for two paragraphs about the great things Dan Coates did and said, I look forward to getting to know Congressman Ratcliffe said nothing about his qualifications, did nothing to endorse it. In fact, <laughs> left, open, left open the possibility that, uh, you know, this could be a pretty ugly hearing. Now, because he's a member of Congress, my guess is he'll get a fair bit of deference. And because the Senate's controlled by Republicans, my guess is that he would probably get um, uh, confirmed. But certainly the one qualification he had here was that audition that he did for uh, President Trump during the Mueller hearing last week, where he basically went after Mueller on whether or not the entire investigation was an illegal enterprise. Um, I don't think it was an illegal enterprise, but it was sort of interesting that uh, that he pursued that line. So uh, that's number one. On Dan Coats himself, you know, there were two notable moments. One was at the Aspen Security Forum a year ago when Andrea Mitchell was interviewing him and learned during the interview that President Trump had just tweeted that he had uh, invited Vladimir Putin to the White House. And you could see the look of shock and horror on Coates's face. I was in the room at the time. And then he sort of smiled and said, well, that will be special. Um, I thought he actually handled it pretty great but uh, it was a symbol of how much he was sort of left out of the loop. And then the second big notable moment for Dan Coates came during the testimony early this year on the worldwide threat assessment, usually pretty boring except to listeners of Deep State Radio who pick apart the worldwide threat assessment piece by piece. Um, and uh, in that case, he contradicted uh, President Trump on North Korea, Iran, and ISIS. He said that ISIS hadn't been defeated, that Iran was still in compliance with its uh, nuclear agreement, and that uh, North Korea was continuing to produce nuclear materials and weapons despite all of the wonderful um, uh, diplomacy. And this led the president to uh, call him and other intelligence leaders in for a talking to on uh, the following day. I doubt he's going to have to do that with Congressman Ratcliffe, which is probably why the intelligence community is worried. So, Rosa, if uh, the uh, uh, Coates' uh, tenure there was well-received, we uh, have some early warnings or concerns about Ratcliffe. And one of them came as a result of his performance in the Mueller hearing last week, where he went after Mueller extremely hard, as, as, as David indicated, uh, and was extremely partisan. And, of course, one can look at 
the intelligence community in a number of ways. But one way you can look at it is as playing an important role in um, supporting or undoing the Trump narrative of events. And Ratcliffe himself has gone so far as to say that he believed that the Obama administration may have broken the law in going and 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 surveilling uh, the Trump campaign. So he's already put a marker down. I'm you know I'm coming in as the head of the IC, and I think the IC did wrong. So one question must be: Does Trump see Ratcliffe? Um, as a defensive maneuver, and what do you think the consequences of having a partisan in that position might be? Well, it's it's another, it's more chipping away at the tradition that certain jobs are are nonpartisan nature, even if their chief is is obviously appointed by whoever happens to be president. And I and I think in the intelligence community in particular, there is a long and proud tradition, not a perfect one by any means, but but certainly a, a pretty strong one of saying this is supposed to be above politics. This is, you know, just the facts, ma'am. This is not, uh, you know, we're not the ones who make the policy decisions or the political calls, but we, we tell it like we see it. And I obviously that's the intelligence community does not have a perfect record. And, and uh, I think it's fair to say, for instance, that in the run up to the Iraq war, uh, there was not quite as much uh, uh, clarity from the intelligence community on the precise nature of the evidence or, or, or lack of evidence, as it turned out, about Iraqi WMD. But, but, but I think despite that, you know, in many ways, that was sort of the exception that proved the rule, um, you know, that, that the intelligence community has been, been seen to be and, and generally has been strongly committed to being realists, saying, you know, we, we're not the political decision makers, but we're going to tell you what we see out there. Uh, and, you know, Dan Coates seems to have lived up to that tradition. Uh, uh, Radcliffe seems very unlikely to do so. He's, you know, he's, he's a partisan hack. Uh, he's a partisan hack who either either believes quite a number of things that are simply not true as a result of his ideological preconceptions or is willing to say various things that are not true. And, and I think I think that, you know, the more institutions uh, become seen by the American people as just partisan, just partisan tools that would be manipulated, uh, you know, the more danger our democracy is in. And, and there's already a pretty low public perception of the the credibility of most of our public institutions. So, so I do think it is it is very it, it's bad. It is. It's 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 bad. But but one other thing I did want to say about Dan Coats, obviously, you know, good for Dan Coats for for sticking to his guns uh, and saying, hey, this is what we see, even when Donald Trump didn't like it. But but one of the things that I think we have learned uh, from the our experience thus far with the Trump administration um, is that it's all very well to try to be that ethical principled person in the Trump administration uh, and then resign when it all gets to be too much. But, but people who do that and think, Oh, well, I'm making a difference by resigning or, you know, they're kidding themselves if they're not willing to come out. And I think this is true of Jim Mattis as well. And true of several other people, if they're not willing to come out afterwards and say, 
this is not acceptable, here's what's going on, and be really clear about it. I'm not sure what, what good it does the rest of us, and, and I worry that essentially it what ends up in the, in the warped universe of the Trump administration, it, it ends up being just Trump wins again. He gets rid of the ethical people, they stay quiet, uh, and Trump then does something even worse. Okay, can I, can I um, offer a counter to Rosa's very good point? which is that buying time is not inconsequential when we have a president that doesn't respect the Constitution, that doesn't treat the intelligence agencies or the military or other arms of federal power um, as, as having an importance independence of political value to him. Okay, well, that's a point. I, I, I completely now, agree with that. I think it's just, it's just, it's not enough. Now there's a next step that we, that the nation needs fair enough. Coats to I do. I agree with that. There's more truth to be told. Uh, no, hey, David, no before we, before we all pile on on what a wonderful guy Dan Coates was. Well, I, I, I was going to actually try to pile on and let Ed into the conversation, oh, but go no, ahead. Sorry. Briefly. No, no, send Ed ahead, and then we'll all pile on Ed instead. Yeah, well, okay. Um, but, but, but Ed, I was hoping you might broaden this out a bit. Um, and and because there is a pattern emerging here, uh, and that is that Trump is has replaced the generals and the adults in the room with essentially a Praetorian guard, essentially a group of people who can defend him and who will defend him at, over the various attacks that he's seen in the first couple of years. And so Bill Barr is not the attorney general. He's his defense counsel. He's his Roy Cohn. And Mitch McConnell is not the Senate majority leader, but, but he actually will stop anything that might hurt Trump, might hurt the GOP agenda. Uh, including, you know, likely not even bringing up an impeachment vote. There's some constitutional debate whether he, he could stop it, but 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 he plays a role like that. And, you know, Ratcliffe, in the position that he might be in within the intelligence community atop it, it would also serve a similar role. People who place Trump above national security, um, and I'm wondering whether you agree with that and how you see that as a development uh, that might affect the U.S. election, might affect the future of U.S. behavior in the world? Well, that's a very good question. And as you were asking it, I was uh, try trying to think of an exception, whether there was any left. And Gina Haspel, I guess, is at the CIA. I mean, she's a career professional, and she has somehow slipped through the net and stayed through the net as a professional um, in one of the key jobs. Um, but generally speaking, you know, there's nobody else. I mean, uh, who are we going to talk about? Ben Carson, Rick Perry. Um, you look ac across the Trump administration and pretty much, um, pretty much every position is now held by somebody who has no ethical restraint on what they will do for Trump. And indeed, that's why uh, that's why they're in the jobs that they're in. Ratcliffe's going to be no exception if he's confirmed. And um, what does it do? Um, I, I, I can't really add that much to what Rosa has just said, which um, I agree with fully, um, that this, you know, further contaminates 
the independence of institutions of, of national security and, and legal institutions in the eyes of the American public. It further normalizes um, the um, discrediting of expertise and professionalism um, and public service um, as a vocation um, and uh, integrity as being something that is rewarded. Integrity is for fools. Um, I remember um, when I was based in India, um, there was a word um, used about honest people, honest bureaucrats, that um, uh, that had a, a double meaning, and the other meaning was idiot. Um, and that seems very, very cynical, and this was a, a very, very corrupt time in India's history, which um, is still there to some extent. But that is the kind of mindset, I think, that is deeply corrosive. And the longer it's accepted, the longer it's around, um, the harder it is to um, to do anything about it. And I fear, you know, very much that that we're outraged. Um, uh, I mean, we're despondent by seeing people like Ratcliffe get jobs like that, um, um, and and pe- people like Pompeo um, second guessing his his boss and keeping his job simply because he moves with every inflection, with every sneeze of Trump, he will be exactly behind him. Um, the more the more despondent we get, the, the, the less perhaps we realize that most of America isn't paying much attention to this. The world, other capitals are. Um, you know, this is good news in Moscow. It's good news in, in Beijing. Um, this, is, this is a far more familiar way of doing business um, to them than the independence of American institutions um, that America is so well known for. But I don't think it's, you know, I don't think it's something that's going to outrage people um, to the degree that we would wish it would. So, David, you were about to say something, and I didn't mean right. to rudely cut you no, off. No, I just no. wanted to make sure the gang all got their chances here. No, I thought that was uh, that was absolutely right, and I agree with every single thing that Ed said. I will deny that if you ever play the tape back. But um, the, we, um, we plan to play. Ringo back. was good at drums. Yeah. <laughs> You know this is a so, podcast, um, right, David? Oh, like the yeah, point I keep of forgetting. it is people playing it I back. Keep forgetting. Oh, okay. <laughs> Thank you for reminding me, Corey. Um, so glad so, to help the ball club. Um, so thinking out ahead, I mean, you, Ed rightly said this was, um, uh, you know, good news for Beijing and and good news uh, for Vladimir Putin. It's really good news if you're Kim Jong Un. Why? Because the one thing that could get in the way of the president continuing to declare victory uh, on his diplomacy with North Korea would be an annoying intelligence agency assessment uh, similar to the one that the DIA has now, the Defense Intelligence Agency, that he's probably built 12 nuclear weapons since the Singapore summit a little over a year ago. And this kind of thing, you know, can get in the way of a narrative during a campaign where the president wants to say that we have um, you know, disarmed the North Koreans. Um, the other thing that worries me about it going forward is that if this Congress ever has to take up the important question of what happens if things turn bad with Iran, and they've already turned pretty bad, um, they're going to need an honest, non-inflated assessment of how far away the Iranians are from the capability to build a nuclear weapon. And you could find yourself easily back in an Iraq situation 
where every worst case scenario became, in fact, the assessment. So that's what worries me. I hinted before that I think that there are some things to be said to suggest that Dan Coats will not be viewed entirely as uh, a complete success here. And uh, I think that the, the concern is that uh, Coates could, he, he was so busy defending the intelligence community from White House incursions that he didn't have the time or the bandwidth to do the big conversion of the intelligence community to greater use of the cloud, greater use of artificial intelligence, greater reorientation towards cyber threats, greater reorientation to other new technological threats. Um, and I think this will be viewed as a really important turning point time when the Chinese and others were using that time to change the way they went about the intelligence business. This episode is sponsored by a podcast called The Meb Faber Show, which was called by The Wall Street Journal one of the top five investing podcasts that you should not miss. If you're looking to learn more from the brightest minds in finance or simply want to know more about investing in a casual and fun interview format, you must tune in. Shows hosted by Meb Faber, CEO of Cambria Investments and an award-winning ETF manager. The goal of the show is to help you grow and preserve your wealth by giving you new investment insights and ideas. Check out the Meb Faber Show wherever you enjoy your podcasts. That's Meb, M-E-B, Faber, F-A-B-E-R, the Meb Faber Show. So that's one of the uh, opportunity costs associated with this period in our history. Um, you have the director of national intelligence busy defending his agencies against uh, onslaughts from within the government and so unable to direct their focus outward. But Corey, as we look around the world, and I made a reference joking earlier to Boris Johnson, you know, one of the more common things you see these days is a headline that goes, Boris Johnson is the United Kingdom's Trump. Or, you know, Pierre Bolsonaro is Brazil's Trump. Or Bibi Netanyahu is becoming more and more Trump-like. Or Salvini, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It, and, and there is this kind of combination of uh, uh, being bold, which is to say lying, um, attacking the press, grabbing media attention, um, being nationalist, uh, being, uh, you know, targeting the other one way or another, whether it's immigrants or indigenous people in Brazil or Palestinians in Israel. Um, and 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 undertaking some really disturbing steps uh, that are sort of anti-democratic or anti the interests of the country. And I'm wondering, a, whether you see this as a a trend and 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 b, you know what is what is driving it? It doesn't seem to me necessarily that Trump is driving it. He may be a symptom of it, regardless of how people characterize it. but what's what's your view? Um, so in a in a twisted way, we Americans should take as a compliment that the behavior of the leader of our country uh, creates mini-me's 
in other countries. That is, if we sanction behavior that violates the norms of respect for a, a multi-party democracy, uh, constitutional restraints, uh, the expectation that once elected president, you work to unite the country, not further aggravate the fissiparousness of a multiracial and multireligious society, that uh, behavior that endangers elected officials uh, is something that the federal government should work to um, tamp down and prevent rather than aggravate. All of those things are norms, laws, standards of behavior that for a very long time people look to the United States not only to exemplify in the in the behavior of our own senior officials, but also to support elsewhere. It's genuinely shocking that the president of the United States is intervening in Britain's domestic politics in an overt race baiting and highly politicized way. Um, you know, I'm old enough to remember when it was beyond the pale that President Obama expressed his personal opinion that the United Kingdom benefited more from remaining in the European Union than exiting it. Um, and, and so and it you remember shows... who was most outraged by that, Corey? Nigel Farage. <gasps> wait, wait, wait. Nigel Farage. Johnson? Interference in British politics. Outrageous. This is, um, breaks all precedent. And now he goes to the White House and takes instruction. Yes, exactly. So, again, Tony Blair had to deal with a, a firestorm of concern that he was too responsive to American interests, which just goes to show how much the example the United States uh, creates and the policies that either support protesters in Hong Kong and Moscow against repressive actions by repressive governments or uh, taking no interest and, you know, Secretary Pompeo and it's such a self-satisfied way saying, I think our view on this is known. Those kinds of things have second order effects that are damaging to an international order that we built because it's in our interests. Um, and so the corrosion of a liberal rules-based international order is accelerating, and it's accelerating because people are mimicking American behavior. So, Rosa, let me pick up on that. Um, and let me begin with the question, have you ever used in a sentence the word fissiparousness? Which um, no, wrote, I, I which Corey, which Corey just did. <laughs> but, but I'm I plan to very soon now that, I, now that I've learned it. <laughs> you know, Rosa, you were awesome. looking for a title for your next book. I think that would be it. <laughs> right. I think that's it. The, yeah. All could, right. All as, right. As the, as, the, as the new Beatles, we can describe you as the Fiss of Paris Four. But. <laughs> I personally am writing a letter to the trustees of Columbia University right after I'm done here, <laughs> taking issue with the weaknesses in my education that led that to the first time I've ever heard the word. Would you, would, would you leave us some room, David? We have a few things we wanted to add to that letter. <laughs> yeah, certainly. You can add anything you want. Um, but, 
Bros, I just I thought you might want to pick up a little bit on what Corey was saying and talk about this this trend, whether it's a trend towards Trumpiness internationally or whether there is something in this moment um, that is that is beyond that that we ought to be noting. Um, yes, there, there. I, I think both are true. I, I think that um, America still is a city on the hill in some respects, in that we get a lot of attention, whether we deserve it or not, whether it's for good reasons or not. Uh, people around the world do pay attention to us, and they pay attention to us when we do good things, and they pay attention to us when we do awful things. And and there's there's it, it's crystal clear that when American leaders and in this case Donald Trump do crappy things, uh, say racist things, evince a disregard for the rule of law, human rights, uh, that that it's in, in very there is a very direct line to the enabling of uh, authoritarian and bad actors elsewhere who are often quite quite quick to to quote to quote the American leaders as, as ammunition is, is legitimizing their own actions. You know, it's, it's, it's not, it's not indirect at all. It's, it's very, very quick and straightforward. So in that sense, yes, is this, is this partly about Donald Trump? Is, is he enabling, uh, and, and helping to legitimize, um, all the various nasty people who you mentioned? Yes, he is. Um, is it also something beyond Trump? Yes, yes, I don't think Trump caused this, although I think he's enabling it further and fueling it. Um, I, I, you know, I, and we've talked about this before, and this is something, you know, Ed, Ed I know has lots to say about as well. Um, you know, the, the general global disillusionment with the, uh, you know, the, the, the world order uh, that was so triumphantly in the post post-Cold War period was supposed to bring prosperity to all and rising tides were going to lift all boats and free trade was breaking out all over and democracy was breaking out all over. You know, that that for many people around the world, obviously, including in the United States, did not live up to its promise. And there's led to a lot of a lot of anger, a lot of distrust of elites uh, who sort of said, well, we know what's best for you, just trust us. Didn't work out too well for a lot of people. And I do think that 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 sense of dislocation, of disappointment, of uncertainty, of who can we trust is, you know, one of the things that's fueling uh, the resurgence of right-wing nationalist populism in many places in the globe. That being said, it's actually been kind of a, you know, in some ways an exciting few weeks because we've also seen uh, enormous popular uprisings against more repressive and authoritarian regimes in many places. You know, we've seen... Yeah, we've seen in you know, the ongoing saga in Hong Kong, for instance, um, enormous protests in Moscow leading to the arrest of like 1,400 protesters. Um, we've seen peaceful protests in Algeria um, going on for weeks. Uh, uh, you know, what will all of this end up amounting to? Hard to say, but but it is kind of amazing to see that despite everything, there is still energy on the other side, energy to say, wait a second, it's not okay to take away all of our political freedoms, et cetera. Well, that, that's exactly um, uh, where I wanted to go with all the of this. The kind of optimism we expect from you, Rosa. 
That's right. Um, <laughs> yes, yes, I, I would yes. Say, maybe yes. when I thought of you guys as the Fab Four, I was thinking Rosa was more the John Lennon and Corey was more the Paul McCartney. <laughs> maybe, maybe I was wrong. Was, was it the but, hair? Uh, it, uh, whatever. <laughs> the, you know, it's just that. But let me let me turn to George and Ringo now. Um, and, uh, and I'll pick. <laughs> Wait a minute. <laughs> no, Rosa, totally a compliment. Let's stay yeah, with it. <laughs> work, work with me, but, um, but but let me turn to Ed, and then I'll turn to David, and and pick up on Rosa's point. We do seem, in 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 a small way, in a big way, to also be at the bit of an inflection of a kind of a people power moment, with eight weeks of protests in China that are still going on and getting more intense. Um, uh, the protests in Russia that she mentioned, the protests in Algeria that have had an effect, uh, protests uh, just in the past 24 hours in Pakistan, large ones against the prime minister. We've had some fairly large demonstrations in the US, although some of us might wish there were larger ones. Um, I'm, I'm wondering if we might sort of anticipate this kind of reassertion of of rights and push back on authoritarianism or whether you don't think these things are in any way related um no i mean i i think to some degree we we overestimate um the bad influence we have and the good influence that we have um we being the west in general the united states in particular um, on political developments elsewhere in the world. We can, we can put our shoulder to the wheel and help it along or um, put our foot in front of it and try and stop it. But generally, generally political movements tend to be organic. You know, even the best, most sophisticated CIA insurgency operations during uh, the Cold War couldn't, couldn't usually invent something from scratch. Um, I think our example, um, our example, of course, is very powerful. But you know, in a case like Hong Kong, even though there some protesters um, have been seen carrying um, stars and stripes and even Union Jacks, um, they're few and far between. This is this is a, a movement of Hong Kong people that nobody predicted, um, nobody in the West predicted, nobody in China anticipated. It, it comes from. Um, very direct local knowledge of the difference between the Hong Kong judicial system, which remains relatively independent, and the Chinese judicial system, which is um, not remotely um, independent and highly brutal. And I think what the Hong Kong protests represent is a very hopeful, an extremely hopeful um, indicator of um, what we could potentially see in the years ahead within China. Although I'm told that the Chinese, uh, even when in the age of the internet, um, it's so well censored that the Chinese popular perception of what's going on in Hong Kong is very refracted. It's very distorted. Um, so, you know, Moscow, Hong Kong, you know, these, these are all very, very local situations that we didn't anticipate. And we're not helping to our shame. We're not helping. But I don't think, um, I think sometimes we overestimate just how all, all dominating we are and just, um, and just how important we are to these, to these movements. I, I find it very encouraging precisely because it wasn't dreamt up in the West. It's come organically 
you know, from the people of Hong Kong. Um, I don't see any, I don't detect any larger patterns except to say one thing, um, which is that if you're living in Moscow um, uh, or, or, in, um, uh, or in anywhere in China, I think you understand the value of freedom in a way we've completely forgotten. We've just taken it for granted. Uh, and uh, maybe we can learn from them rather than us teaching them. Um, yes, well, in, in fact... I love that point, Ed. Yeah, I, I oh, do too. thank you. Does that make me George? I want to get off the Ringo, uh, you know, beat. <laughs> well, let's, let's give... Let's give David a chance to save his role here. Um, but uh, but I think uh, I see a stacked vote. Well, don't know. It's, it's not up to us. It's up to the great. It's it's up to the great world of 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 the deep state radio nerds to make these final decisions. But um, uh, and, and, they, and they, at least they won't make you you know like Pete Best, right? Right. Um, in fact, they won't even know who Pete Best is. But uh, the 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 thing that is uh, concerning about these movements is that they come at a moment when the United States and others who might res respond strongly in defense of the protesters don't do that. And the U.S. hasn't really done that in the case of Hong Kong. And uh, today, the day of this recording, Monday, uh, when asked a question about what was going on in Russia, Pompeo sort of brushed it off and said, well, you know, we were for freedom of expression always, but but really didn't want to talk about it. Uh, other U.S. administrations might have, the international community might have, there might have been a sense uh, uh, that there might be pushback if you mistreated people, and yet we reward the Saudis, we reward others for bad treatment, Duterte and and Erdogan and so on. And so the question becomes, you know, is this a particularly dangerous moment for these protesters because there is nobody to stand up for them? So I, I think, David, there are two things that make this a particularly dangerous moment. The first is the memory of the Arab Spring. You know, we were all highly enthused, saw those wonderful pictures of people massing in Tahrir Square and look what Egypt looks like today, more repressive than it was under Mubarak. And that's because the people who come out and organize these movements aren't always ready to go organize a government. And in fact, the protesters in Egypt said as much. So uh, the great thing is, as, as Ed points out, it's organic. The bad thing is it's not clear it's sustainable. And the Arab Spring should, should serve as a warning to all of us. On the behavior of the administration here, um, conduct this thought experiment. Imagine for a minute that the protests that you were seeing in Hong Kong and in Moscow had actually taken place in Tehran. What would be happening now? You would be getting press releases and public statements about freedom-loving people and freedom fighters um, fight, pushing back against an authoritarian, repressive, out of out of touch uh, government. And that by the way, you don't you, you don't even have to imagine. Just instead of saying Iran, say Venezuela. That's right. That's right. So you've you've seen it. And in fact, this administration was extremely critical that President Obama had not done enough to stand up for the protesters in Iran early in his administration. And by the way, I think that critique is a valid one. They 
the Obama uh, team should have done a lot more, and the president himself should have. He didn't want to be seen as um, making this a, these protests a, a U.S. plant, f- figuring that that would play into the hands of, of the government. So um, I was stunned by the silence of the president, I guess I shouldn't have been, uh, over the weekend about the 1,400 arrests or however many it turned out in the end, quite brutal arrests in Moscow, while he was spending his time beating up on Baltimore as um, a hellhole of the city. It's a hellhole of the city and the president of the United States. You'd think you'd want to go work on what it was you might do to make it less hellholeish, right? Uh, but instead, we didn't hear a word about this. And uh, you mentioned the very uh, lukewarm comments from Secretary Pompeo. Uh, and so I think that's really worth sort of considering. This is an administration that sees fundamental rights as something that should be raised anytime it is of immediate use to their daily agenda. And that's it. Uh, yeah, well, that's exa- that's exactly right. We've only got about five minutes left here, and I just thought I'd go around to everybody very quickly with a question uh, on a subject we ought to devote more time to. Um, but, uh, and, and I'll start with you, 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 you Corey and, and, and Ed, but I'd let each person talk for a minute about the subject. Um, and that is that yesterday was the hottest day in the history of the United Kingdom, which has been recording temperatures forever. Um, Europe has been absolutely scorched by heat wave. And perhaps most disturbingly, the Arctic is in flames in many places. Um, the coldest place on earth is literally you know, burning down in some places. And, and this issue of climate crisis is, is clearly the biggest global concern we all face. And yet still not only doesn't bubble up, but you know the the richest, most powerful nation on earth has has a government that's denying it's even taken place. And I'm I'm just wondering what your your thoughts are in this particular moment about whether you know a new administration in a couple of years can snap back, or whether somebody else is going to have to pick up the lead on this, or whether it's too late. And I'm just going to go around the group, but I'll start with Corey. Okay, well, in order to reclaim my tiara of optimism from Rosa, I will say that what I actually believe, which is that it's not too late, and that there's, uh, and yes, it is a serious problem. The political scientist in me feels the need to point out that collective action deficiencies uh, are the natural state of international cooperation. So the well-tended garden of the American-led post-World War II international order is an unnatural act. And it's very hard for countries without American leadership to organize to solve big collective action problems. So this, too, is an opportunity cost, both of President Trump's visiparousness and also of our and Britain and several other free, prosperous societies turning inward and and slashing at each other instead of solving big problems together. The only other thing I would say, and here's where I put on my tiara of optimism, 
is that you saw that the big three car companies have reached an agreement with the great golden state of California to set standards much higher than the federal government is willing to set. And this is one more example that you guys have heard me use before about the fact that the United States is going to be the first country to meet its Paris Climate Accord goals because state regulation, consumer advocates, my mom, the Michael, Michael Bloomberg's money, Apple computers, all of those dynamic civil society forces that have views that the government isn't reflecting have means to affect these problems. And that's a great thing for the United States. But what all of those forces have a difficult time doing, which comes back to American leadership, is they have a difficult time convening everybody, persuading governments to do stuff, coming up with a plan that everybody can contribute to. And that's the opportunity cost of the solipsism of democratic leaders right now. Okay, there we go. Um, let's go to Ed, then Rosa, then David. Well, it's funny that you're, since I'm in the UK, I'm, uh, your question's very much on my mind because I'm at my, I'm fortunate enough, my parents are still alive and they're still living in the same place that um, I grew up as a child here in the south of England, uh, in Sussex, about 50 miles south of where Corey is. Um, and I, I remember the summers when I grew up here um, and they were drizzly, uh, often gray. There were some sunny days. Um, but in the last few years, for every August, I take my daughter here for two weeks. Um, and the last few years, it's been more often than not Mediterranean skies, high soaring temperatures. It's been a very different climate to the one I grew up in and uh, changed so much. Um, that, And the hills that I can see as I'm talking to you, because I'm sitting in the garden, the South Downs, um, the French champagne houses are building, uh, um, are buying up tracts of it and planting vineyards. So the climate, you know, in the space of 40 years or so since my childhood has moved two, 300 miles north. Um, and that, that to me is a very real, very, very tangible, you know, um, example that I often think about of what is a very abstract debate. And part of the problem, you know, as Corey was setting out with the collective action problem internationally, part of the problem politically with climate change is how abstract it is. It's, it's easy to, um, it's easy for, really very malevolent actors, the climate deniers, to sow enough doubt in people's minds to make it politically very difficult to do things. Um, you know, even, even the, the people on the, the good side, like Justin Trudeau in Canada, who proclaims, uh, who virtue signals a lot about his um, green credentials, uh, he's just approved the Trans Mountain Pipeline between Alberta and British Columbia, the Tar Sands Pipeline, which is a massive addition to global warming, um, a massive, massive addition. It, it, it times 100 outweighs any good he's done on the subject. So, you know, not to tarnish Corey's um, very elegant and elegantly worn tiara of optimism, um, but uh, I, don't see, I don't see progress being made. I think that we've seen carbon emissions go up since Trump became president. Um, we have seen um, any real international resolve um, uh, weaken further with America's departure from the Paris Accord. Um, and 
I fear, you know, that the, 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 the target set was we've got to reduce emissions by, I think it was it 25% by 2030, or was it 30% by 2030? I can't remember the exact reduction in emissions, but we're going the opposite way. And, and if we don't, if we don't, according to that target, get that reduction by 2030, then we get into a catastrophist territory. We get into a, above 1.52 degrees um, centigrade warming, and we get into completely radical scenarios. Um, where um, you know it, it's it's never it's never going to be too late, I don't think, to 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 do good things, but where um, very bad things will then be baked into the system. And I know there are a lot of climate scientists who believe they already are. So I can't I can't share Corey's optimism much as I'd like to. Okay, so I'm I'm going to switch it around here because I realized David had a hard stop at 3:15, and so I'll go. David, then uh, Rosa, and we'll try to wrap it up in the next couple minutes. Um, just one thing to add to uh, uh, Ed's very good explanation of all of this, which is that somehow or another in this debate, the argument for economic efficiency has fallen entirely in the hands of those people who have been arguing why you shouldn't have regulation, why you shouldn't have limits on carbon emissions and so forth. And you know, Ed's sitting in his garden in Sussex. I'm looking out over the Green Mountains in our backyard in Vermont. And I can tell you my neighbors who um, do all the good Vermont things like maple syrup see the difference and they see it from the output that they uh, uh, have each year. And that's a tiny little slice of what some of the economic cost of this has been in the fishing industries, in uh, a lot of recreational uh, industries and so forth. And I think that part of the case here has to be the economic cost of sitting around and doing nothing or the economic cost of backing up from past commitments. And it may be that those costs in the end don't outweigh the costs of the regulation, but it sure would be interesting if you could inject that into the public debate and not just into papers that are being written by economists because it's the forgotten element of this. And um, so there's a huge human cost, but there's also a huge economic cost. And you would think that would result in a significant political cost. It hasn't so far. I suspect it will lead to a backlash at some point. Thank you. Rosa? Yeah, I, I agree. I, I think the, the problem right now is that people aren't scared enough. And historically, we overcome collective action problems in the international order, as well as overcoming collective action problems domestically, only when people are scared out of their minds. And they're not there yet. They are getting closer. Um, I, you know, I think that the temperature records across Europe in the last, in the last week uh, are shocking some people. Um, I think that the extreme weather events we've been seeing are beginning to shock people. But I think, unfortunately, you know, until things get much, much worse, there will be too many people who say, well, you know, maybe it really won't be that bad. Maybe it won't really happen, et cetera, et cetera. You know, when things get really, really, really awful, we probably will start finding ways to take collective action, whether it will be too late um, I don't know. Odds are actually pretty good that it will be too late to prevent, 
you know, catastrophic economic damage and human suffering in many parts of the globe. You know, I'm reasonably confident that the human species will be doing okay in 500 years one way or another. Um, but I suspect that we are likely to go through a period of, of enormous economic and social disruption as a result of our inability to uh, get our get our hands around get our arms around climate change early enough to to prevent that disruption. Well, I, I, I agree with uh, the substance of essentially all of you, um, and uh, uh, we'll sidestep for the moment the disagreements because we'll come back to them as we engage in this discussion in upcoming uh, episodes. Uh, we've got uh, another episode this week on Thursday with Deep State Radio Live, which will talk about some more Washington-centric uh, developments. We had four episodes last week, so you can always go back. We had a special, in addition to our usual episodes, we also had special conversation with Bill Burns, um, uh, probably the foremost American diplomat of the past 50 years. And, and his also, book is fantastic. And it his is. Book is great. And, and, and we, talked about, we talked about the book. And, uh, uh, and it was a great conversation, kind of masterclass in diplomacy. And if you're interested, you should definitely listen. And we had a great conversation with Jonathan Greenblatt, who is the uh, CEO of the Anti-Defamation League on, on racism and intolerance right now. Uh, and so if you haven't listened to those from last week, go ahead and listen to them. Join us again on Thursday uh, for more, including other kinds of content that we've been doing. Go to the dsrnetwork.com. And while you're there, sign up, become a member, help support the growth that we've got. We just did a big survey and we'll tell you about the results. 500 results from all of you out there talking about who you are and what you like and what you don't like. And the majority of you who said that you are uh, supporting and becoming members say you're doing so because you want to support the work of uh, the DSR network and the kind of programming we're bringing to you. Uh, and, you know, we hope others feel that way and we'll, jo we'll join them as members. So please, uh, go to the dsrnetwork.com. Join us again next week and allow, and join me in thanking um, uh, Rosa and Corey and David and Ed and uh, enjoy the remainder of the week, guys. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you.